Mark chapter 1 this morning. We are beginning the first of the major sections of Mark's gospel here. We've noted already that verses 1 through 13 form an introduction to this book. And so today we've come to verse 14, and we won't be focusing on verses 14 and 15 specifically today. That will come next week. And actually, the way that Mark has written, we can't focus only on Mark 1, 14 and 15. Uh, and we will see that as we come to the conclusion today. What we'll do today is I want to survey the entire book of Mark with you so that you can see how this section fits into the development of the whole book. And then we'll look at this section, verse chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2 together and see how we are going to approach it today. So a lot of teaching today, not so much preaching, but at the end we will note what this section has to say to people like us, people who are sinners. So we will look today at the entire book. And if you would, I've asked you to open to Mark 1, but I should have asked you to open to Mark 8. I'm sorry. We'll begin in Mark 8. There are two main sections to the book of Mark, and it's not apparent, those two main sections on the outline that I've given you in your worship guide. Uh, the outline of Mark's gospel seems to divide this into four sections with a prologue, an introduction, and a conclusion, an epilogue. But uh, I think that what we will see here is that really those four main sections, they go together into sets of two so that there are two main sections to Mark's gospel. Let's read Mark, verse, Mark 8, verses 30 through 31. Begin in, sorry, verse 29. Jesus asked his disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Messiah, the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. He began to teach them, the Holy Spirit says here. This is the first time in the book of Mark that Jesus, or Mark himself, has said anything directly to us about Jesus' death that will come. What comes immediately before this beginning to teach? Well, Peter has just come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. That's actually the first time in this book that any person, any human being, has come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah. Peter concludes he's the Messiah. Jesus begins now to teach. There's a contrast between Peter's opinion of Jesus, that he's the Christ, and what all the crowds say about him in verse 28. Some say he's John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. Those crowds and Peter throughout the first eight chapters have both seen and heard from Jesus. Peter concludes he's the Messiah. He's the first human being to conclude that in Mark's gospel. The crowds conclude he's John the Baptist or one of the prophets. And actually, these crowds are going to turn against Jesus in the end. 
even though they've witnessed some of the miraculous works of power done by Christ. So this is what we observe in this passage of Scripture. And what that means is all of that comes together to tell us that this is a major turning point in Mark's Gospel. For the first time, a human being recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah. And for the first time, Jesus begins to tell his disciples about his coming death in Jerusalem. And this is a major division in the book because, as it were, in the first eight chapters, the crowds and the disciples have both been witnessing Jesus, what he has said, what he has done. But for the first time, we see that they are coming to different conclusions about him. The disciples are concluding he's the Messiah. The crowds are concluding he's someone else. The crowds don't understand, but the disciples apparently are coming to some measure of understanding. But if you will, look with me at Mark 8 and notice that there's Mark 9 and 10 and 11 and 12. Mark 8 is not the end of the book. This is a turning point. It's not a conclusion. What becomes to us by the very structure of the book, what becomes clear to us by the very structure of the book of Mark is that believing that Jesus is the Messiah is not the end of the road. Jesus is not content merely to bring Peter to the conclusion, you are the Messiah. Story over, everything's done. There's a second half to the book. There's more to the story. And that's chapters 9 through 16. So we have two sections here then. Chapters 1 through 8, essentially. Chapters 9 through 16. What is in each of these two main sections? Well, the first thing I want you to just think about, and I'm just drawing on the fact that hopefully at some point in your life you've read Mark's Gospel before, but as you read through Mark's Gospel, you are struck with the fact that Jesus is the main character for the whole thing. In fact, every story, except three, Jesus is the center of that story. And apart from these three brief, brief stories, he is the dominant character in the book of Mark. So I want you just to look at these three sections where he's not the dominant character first. Okay, turn back to chapter 1. We're very familiar with this first section. Jesus is not the dominant character. John the Baptist is. We've been through this. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. It forms an introduction to the book. It introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth. But it also introduces us to the one who comes before him, John. John tells us here that he is, verse 2, verse 3, preparing the way for the Lord. And through John's ministry, God has prepared a people. He has called them out through John's preaching, called them out of Israel, and he has prepared a king. He has marked out his king by John's baptism, by the descent of the Spirit, and by his own cry from heaven. So we have a people... We have a king prepared, and yet John is the center of this first part. The crowds who hear John are prepared to expect the, rival, the arrival of the king. The reader is told that he told who this king is, that he is the Messiah and the Son of God, and that he has come to walk away from the wilderness to Jerusalem. John is the one who prepares that way. And it's after John's ministry is complete, chapter 1, verse 14, after John is arrested, that Jesus now bursts onto the scene, proclaiming the gospel of God in Galilee. And Jesus begins his ministry then in verse 14. So John, in the first part, first one of these stories, John is preparing the way. He's leading the way forward. 
The second section is in Mark 6. This is the second part of the story that doesn't actually make Jesus the center of the story. That second section is in Mark chapter 6. And here, verses 14 through 29, Mark 6, 14 through 29, we find more about John the Baptist. And Jesus is not actually the center of this part of the story. This is where John the Baptist beheads, oh sorry, Herod beheads John the Baptist. Here we find that Jesus has sent his disciples out to preach, chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. And while they're gone, we're told the story of John's death at the hands of Herod. Jesus is not the specific focus of this section, but as we will see when we come to this section, what happens to John is nearly identical to what will happen to Jesus. John's death is very much like Jesus' own death that we will read about at the conclusion of the book. And so, once again, in Mark 6, John is Jesus' forerunner. The path that John walks at the hands of Herod is the path that Jesus will walk at the hands of Israel. Both will meet the same sort of death. And the third section where Jesus is not the main character is beginning, begins at the end of Mark 15. And of course, he's not the main character. Mark 15, verse 42, he's not the main character because he has just given up his life and died. And Mark chapter 15, the end of the chapter through chapter 16, we don't read much about Christ. We read that he has been buried, that he has risen again, but we don't actually see him alive. Instead, the angel tells the women in verse 7, go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And so what is significant for us in each of these sections is this. In the first two, Mark 1 and Mark 6, John the Baptist fulfills the role of the forerunner of the Messiah. He goes before the Messiah, and the Messiah follows on that way. In the third, Mark 15 and 16, Jesus has assumed that role. He's the one who's going before you into Galilee. And that is where it's all begun. It's along the shores of the Sea of Galilee that Jesus calls his disciples to follow him. And they actually haven't done such a good job of that through the Gospel of Mark. But now at the end, Jesus assumes the role that John has had. He is the one who leads his disciples going before them into Galilee and he calls them to follow him on that way. Now, at this point, I probably should make a brief comment on the ending of Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. You can see in our ESV that there's a statement above verse 9. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include Mark 16, verses 9 through 20. And all that that's telling us is that there are a number, a great many of the early manuscripts, copies of John's Gospel, that don't actually have verses 9 through 20 in them. And that fact would seem to indicate then that those verses were not originally part of what, John wrote, what Mark wrote. They were not originally part of the Gospel of Mark. They then would have been added later by someone besides Mark 
And the question is, why would they be added? And the answer is because of the way that verse 8 concludes, the women went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. End of the gospel. Well, that seems kind of strange. Seems like a strange way to end a gospel. And so it seems that some other believers have added verses 9, 9 through 20. And why would they have added that? Well, look at verse 9. Jesus appeared. Verse 12, after these things he appeared. And verse 14, after he appeared to the 11. It seems that they have given us a retelling, a recounting of Jesus' appearances. Why? Because Jesus appears to the women and they don't tell anybody. But here he appears to people and they do. And they go into all the world and preach it. So does Mark end at verse 8 or at verse 20? And the honest answer that I have to give you is I'm not completely sure. Um, it would seem that perhaps uh, the gospel should end at verse 8. And actually, as I have studied Mark's gospel, if the gospel ends at verse 8, it actually makes for a very compelling and powerful story. And we'll see that as we come to it. Uh, but just a note about that at this point. We will sort through some of that, I think, later on. So here are three sections of Mark where Jesus is not the main character, but for the rest of the book he is. And that rest of the book breaks, as we've seen, into two sections, chapters 1 through 8 and chapters 9 through 16. And let's look at those two major sections now very briefly. So if you would, turn back to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Chapters 1 through 8 is the first major section of Mark. And if you would, look at your outline that I've given you. You can see that this major section breaks down into two subsections. Chapter 1, verses 14 through 434, the kingdom has drawn near. And chapter 435 through 830, who then is this? And that section concludes in 830 with Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah. So let's look at that first subsection. The kingdom has drawn near, Mark 1, 14 through 434. It's clear enough in this section that Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom. Look at 1, 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. Jesus proclaims that God, God's good news and tells the people that God's kingdom is here. It is at hand. It has come near. And Jesus proclaims this. To the crowds. And what follows then in chapter 1, verse 14, through chapter 3, verse 6, this might be helpful for you to look at your outline, 1, 14 to 3, 6, is Mark's account of the intrusion of God's kingdom into this world. For centuries, the world had laid under the power of sin and death, the reign of human rebellion. God's benevolent and good reign had largely been absent from the world. Yes, God was still guiding it all according to his plan, but he had not intruded into this world as a conquering king, exercising authority and pushing back the darkness. But all of that has changed now with Jesus coming. God's reign, his kingdom has intruded into this world. How has it come? 
It's come near because God's chosen king, designated at his baptism, has come into this world as a conquering king. He's preaching in Galilee. He's performing great works of power. He's calling disciples to follow him. The kingdom has drawn near. And we'll come back and examine that section in more detail later this morning. But we find in this section, if you would look at chapter 2, and the end of chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 3, there's controversy and conflict that develops, specifically over the Sabbath. The arrival of God's king upon the scene is a challenge to those who are currently in power. And Jesus encounters rising opposition that climaxes in chapter 3, verse 6, with the Pharisees going out, holding counsel with the Herodians against Jesus, how to destroy him. And that brings this first major, this first little subsection to its conclusion. The kingdom has intruded. We see the exercise of Jesus' authority. We see opposition to God's reign mounting and climaxing in chapter 3, verse 6. If the kingdom is here, if Jesus has come, the question is, who's part of that kingdom? And that's a really pressing question because the kingdom has invaded and some oppose and some are part. Who is part of the kingdom? In fact, the very people who we thought represented the kingdom of God, the reign of God upon the earth, the scribes and the rulers and Moses' lawyers and the priests in the temple in Jerusalem, aren't these God's representatives on earth? Jesus comes, and it's them who oppose Jesus, who is actually part of God's kingdom. And that's what the second little part of this first major subsection is all about. Chapter 3, 6 through 434 on your outline. Who are the kingdom's citizens? And the answer that the first chapters of Mark's gospel give us is that the kingdom is wherever the king is. And that's why the crowds flock around him. They want to be under the reign of this benevolent, healing, teaching Savior who will deliver them from the terrible effects of the fall and sin and the curse upon mankind. They want to be near the one who will heal the sick, who will cleanse the lepers, who will deliver them from demons. They want to be with Jesus. And yet Mark is concerned to show us that being part of the kingdom is not merely experiencing God's power to deliver you. Jesus comes preaching the kingdom. And that means that being a part of the kingdom is a matter of knowing what he says and submitting yourself to what he preaches. So who's part of the kingdom? And the answer that this section gives us, 3.6 to 4.34, the, the, the people who are part of the kingdom, Mark gives us two answers. One of them is in Mark 3.35. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Who's part of this family? Whoever does the will of God. Not those who've been healed. Not everybody in the crowds. It's those who do the will of God. And the second answer that Mark gives us is in chapter 4, verse 11. He said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom. But for those outside, 
everything is in parables. There's the division between the insiders and the outsiders. How do you get in? To you it has been given. It's God's own sovereign choice. To the, 11, to the 12, God opens the door. To the crowds, He actually closes the door. And privately, verse, chapter 4, verse 34, he's explaining everything to his disciples. He does not speak to the larger crowds without a parable, but privately he explains everything to his disciples. It is they who know the mysteries of the kingdom. It is they who are the insiders. And this brings us then to the, first major, the end of the first major subsection of Mark's first eight chapters. Chapter 1, verse 14 through 434. The kingdom intrudes. Who then is part of that kingdom? We'll come back and investigate that a bit further in a few minutes. But let's focus now on the second subsection of Mark's first part, okay? So let's focus now on your outline, chapter 4, verse 35 through 830. And the question that this section takes up and answers for us is, who then is this? This next subsection of Mark's gospel... We find an answer to the question that the disciples raise in chapter 4, verse 41. In chapter 4, verse 41, And they were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, Who then is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? That word even tells us they've got a lot more in mind than just the winds and the sea obeying. They've seen demons obey. They've seen sickness obey. They've seen death obey. Who then is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? We've seen these great works of power. We've seen this exercise of authority. We've seen him calling disciples. We've seen him building God's kingdom. Who is this who is doing this? And this section then moves all the way through to the conclusion that the disciples reach, which we've already looked at in 8.30. You are the Messiah. It'd be helpful, I think, for you to turn back to chapter 8. We'll just notice a few things there. In verse 29, Peter reveals his conviction. You are the Christ. What is significant at this point is, as I've pointed out, that the crowds reach a different conclusion. They think he's John the Baptist. They think he's Elijah. They think he's one of the prophets. To them, it has not been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. And we find evidence of that here. They're reaching the wrong conclusion. But not Peter. Peter's on the right track. Mark tells us Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. And Peter gets the first part of that right. But his answer is only partly correct. He has missed part of what Mark tells us about Jesus. Mark says, Messiah and Son of God. Peter says, you're the Messiah, but he's missing the Son of God part. And actually, Mark has written his gospel to make the point that Peter has missed the point. Because look at the stories immediately before and after Peter's confession. Look with me at chapter 8, verse 22. They come to Bethsaida. They bring him a blind man. He begs, they beg him to touch the blind man. He takes the blind man out of the village. He spits and lays his hands on his eyes and asks him, Do you see anything? Blind man, 
do you see anything? And he looks up and he says, I see people and they look like trees walking. Does the blind man see? Yes, sort of. But he doesn't see clearly yet. It takes a second work of Christ, verse 25, so that he sees everything clearly. And then look with me at chapter 8, verse 31, immediately following Peter's confession. Jesus begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected. Verse 32, and he said this plainly, so they should see clearly, because he's speaking plainly. In fact, that word is the same word that he used back in chapter 4 when he says, to you I speak plainly, but not to the crowds. They should get it. But Peter takes this Messiah and begins to rebuke him. The one who this section began with, the one who rebukes the waves. And the disciples say, who then is this that even the waves and the sea obey him? Now Peter has turned around and he has begun to rebuke the rebuker of the waves. He's not seeing things clearly. Jesus diagnoses the heart of what Peter's problem is. Peter, verse 33, has set his mind not on the things of God. Instead, he has set his mind on the things of man. And what is needed then is a mind adjustment. And that's what the second half of Mark's gospel is working towards. We see the disciples confronted again and again and again with the reality of Jesus' death. And constantly we see them shrinking back from that. They want the glory of the kingdom, not the pain of the cross. They want to embrace a Messiah who will lead them to victory. Their interest is in political and physical salvation. They want more works of power. They want more exorcisms of demons. They want more healings of sickness. They want to sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus has been talking about taking up a cross. He's been talking about laying down his life. He's been talking about submitting to death. He talks about denying yourself. And he calls the disciples, follow me on this path. The crowds have followed him, but only as far as they benefit from his power. The crowds don't follow him to the cross. But Jesus calls his disciples to take up their cross and follow him. What will bring them to be able to do that? The crowds won't. What will bring the disciples to be able to follow him all the way to death? It will take a mindset adjustment, focusing their attention not on the things of men, but on the interests of God. It will take coming to understand who Jesus is, that he is not simply Messiah, but that he is Son of God. Only by embracing him as both Messiah and Son of God will the disciples be prepared to fulfill the mandate for which he has called them to follow him, to be fishers of men. And that's what the second major section of Mark is intended to accomplish. Chapters 9 through 16, Jesus is leading his disciples deeper into the question of who he is. And at the end, he wants to bring them back to Galilee. We saw that in chapter 16 the place where he called them to follow him initially. And there he will call them to focus their minds less on human interests and instead on the interests of God. And all of this is intended to prepare them to become fishers of men that he called them to be in the beginning. So there's the book of Mark, hopefully in brief overview.
So let's now go back and focus on that opening section, go back to Mark chapter 1 concerning the kingdom's intrusion. And we are well over halfway through here. This would be the back side of your handout that I gave you. This is the part that looks like that with the colors at the top. And we want to examine this first major section. The kingdom has drawn near chapter 114 through chapter 434. You can see that we're going to focus on primarily on the major subsection, chapter 1, verse 14 through 3, 6, the kingdom's intrusion. Okay, and I've kind of spelled out for you the way that that breaks down. The second, second part of this major section is in, at the bottom of that page, chapter 3, 6 through 434, who are the kingdom citizens? Who belongs to the kingdom? And we'll get to that part of Mark's gospel eventually. But let's see what we can notice here primarily about that first part, chapter 114 through 36, the kingdom's intrusion. In the first part of this little subsection of Mark's gospel, Jesus, look at all the colors. He's proclaiming the kingdom. He is calling disciples. He is exercising authority. He is healing the sick. He's exercising demons. He is becoming immensely popular amongst the crowds. He's clarifying why he has come. I came to do what? Why did he come? Two statements of why he's come. We'll come back to examine this section in more detail in a bit. But at the outset here, let's notice, and we're not going to read through the whole section. You're kind of relying on my summary here. But let's notice that he's exercising authority. He's healing, he's forgiving sins, casting out demons. He's exercising authority. But he's also making authoritative proclamations about God's kingdom. He's preaching, proclaiming the kingdom. He's calling people, repent. He's calling disciples, follow. He's giving commands and barking orders, as it were. He teaches God's word with authority, not like the scribes. He forgives sins as though he were God. And it seems in all of this that he's running his own show. There's everything that's going on in Jerusalem. There's the temple and the priests and the scribes and the lawyers and the Herodians. And then there's Jesus who's doing his own thing, it seems like. It seems he's got little regard for what goes on in Jerusalem. They're the ones who possess the law and the temple. Jesus is out in the streets amongst all the villages of Galilee. His disciples don't fast like the religious leaders, we find out. Even John's disciples fast like them, but not Jesus' disciples. Is there something new going on here? Is something new beginning in this world? Is it growing? And Jesus gives, look with me at your outline now. Middle of the page, Jesus gives three interpretive parables in chapter 218 through 222 that answer that question, is something new going on here? What in the world is happening? The parable of the bridegroom parable of the cloth and the parable of the wine and the wineskins. Something very new is happening. So new that it's actually going to completely replace and destroy the old. The final parable speaks to us about the destruction of both the wineskins and the wine. And that foreshadows the end of Mark's story. The old's going to be done away. Everything that's going on in Jerusalem is going to be abolished. The temple curtain will tear and the temple will be over. But so will the wine, the new wine. It too will be destroyed in a great conflict 
at the end of Mark's Gospel. And finally then, in chapter 2, verses 23 through 36, the final part of this subsection, we see the development of that conflict that's going to lead to that destruction of both the wine and the wineskins. And the conflict is developing over the question of the Sabbath. What is lawful on the Sabbath? And what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Who gets to decide what you get to do on the Sabbath? Who gets to decide what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And the answer is, whoever is the Lord of the Sabbath. And Jesus says, I am the Sabbath's Lord. And that rubs the fur of the Pharisees the wrong way. Because they thought they were in charge of God's administration and His rule upon earth. Jesus comes doing good on the Sabbath. And they, chapter 3, verse 6, plot evil against Him on the Sabbath. Jesus comes to give life on the Sabbath. They come to plot His death on the Sabbath. Their plan is to destroy Him. The new wine will be destroyed along with the wineskins. The conflict develops and the end result will be the destruction of both. So that's how this little subsection, the kingdom's intrusion, develops. Jesus comes, exercising authority. He tells us something new is going on. And putting the new and the old together is going to result in tears. It's going to result in broken wineskins. It's going to result in the destruction of the wine. This conflict that is developing has dramatic consequences in Mark's gospel. The kingdom is intruded and it is now opposed. Okay? So let's go back now and look at the first part of this subsection. We'll go back and look at all the colors at the top. Okay? And we're almost done and then we will draw this together. Chapter 1, verse 14 through 217. Some colored words here to help you put all of this together. Mark is a master story writer. And he has organized his gospel in ways that actually are astounding to look at. And you can see a little bit of that here, chapter 114 through 217. Let's look at this section together briefly. And then it's actually going to help us understand how our study of Mark's gospel is going to proceed in coming weeks. I want you to notice several words and phrases in this section in Mark. And these are all highlighted in colors for you. We see preaching. We see authority. We see works of power. We see healings and exorcisms. We see crowds and popularity. We see the calling of disciples. And we find two statements concerning why Jesus has come. How do we fit all these things together? What's Mark's main point in this section? Well, notice first of all that Jesus exercises authority. We see this authority in several ways. And if you would, look at Mark chapter 1, verse 21 through 28. This is an astounding story. Jesus is teaching. And the crowds are saying, wow, a new teaching with authority. And then he exercises a demon and they say, what in the world is this? A teaching with authority. Jesus is exercising authority in his teaching. Secondly, you'll see that in the outline, that authority in Capernaum to teach is mirrored by authority in Capernaum to forgive sins. This is when they let the man down through the roof of the house. And Jesus says, your son, your sins are forgiven. And the, author the authorities say, who gave him authority to forgive sins? Jesus is exercising authority in Capernaum in the house to forgive sins. Third, you notice that Jesus calls four disciples. 
And that's mirrored by his call of Levi. Jesus is calling disciples. And they respond by obeying him and following. And, thir- and fourth, uh, Jesus exercises authority by his preaching of the kingdom, the reign of God. So Jesus is exercising authority. He's proclaiming, he's healing, he's calling sinners to follow him and submit to his authority and he's forgiving their sins. And the crowds throng around him. Jesus becomes popular as a result of exercising this authority. He performs works of power. And that means that the dominant emphasis of this section is on Jesus' exercise of authority and the response that the crowds give to that. What's the relationship, though, between these four ways that Jesus exercises his authority? In other words, how do they all fit together? Forgiving sins, calling disciples, proclaiming the kingdom, healing sickness, casting out demons, all of these exercises of authority, how do they all fit together? Well, look at chapter 1, verse 14. Notice that after John is arrested, Jesus comes preaching. Look at chapter 1, verse 39. Jesus says, I have come, verse 38, to preach. So verse 39, he goes throughout all Galilee preaching. And then look with me at chapter 2, verse 17. I came to call, not the righteous, but sinners. Okay. Now look at your colors on your outline. Okay, we looked at 114. Where does that fall in the outline? Right at the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 39, where does that fall? Right at the heart, the center, the emphasis. And look at the last one, chapter 2, verse 17. Where's that fall? Right at the end. Do you know what this is telling us? Jesus proclaiming the kingdom is the way that he exercises his authority. That's the beginning, the middle, and the end. The main emphasis is that Jesus comes preaching. What message does he preach? Chapter 1, verse 14, he preaches, The time is fulfilled. God's kingdom has drawn near. Repent and believe. It's right here, right at hand. Jesus preaches that sinners then must repent. They must believe the good news that God's kingdom has intruded into this world. So if that's what Jesus is preaching, if preaching is his primary way of exercising authority, then why in the world does he do these works of power? Why does he cast out demons? Why does he heal the sick? Well, look at chapter 1, verse 21. They go into the synagogue in Capernaum. He begins teaching and everybody's astonished what authority he manifests in his teaching. He casts out a demon. Wow, a new teaching with authority. The casting out of the demon was to prove that Jesus has authority. You see this as well in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Who is this man who has authority to forgive sins? Well, he's the man who raises up the lame, proving he has authority to forgive sins. He shows that he has authority to proclaim the dawn of God's reign over this earth by exercising God's own authority to heal the sick to deliver from demons, even to forgive sins. And you can see on your outline there with the colors, you can see that the center of this section is what? I came to preach. And in that section, verses 35 to 39 of chapter 1, the disciples come to him and say, hey, the crowds have gathered again. Go out and do some more works of power. And Jesus says, no, that's not why I came. I came to preach. 
That's why I'm here. And in chapter 2, verse 17, I came to call sinners to repentance. He came to proclaim the dawn of God's, king, God's kingdom. And he's prepared to leave the crowds behind in order to do that. And that helps us understand then why Jesus heals and then says to people, be quiet, don't tell. Because what happens when he does heal? Look at chapter 1, verse 40. Chapter 1, verse 40. Jesus heals a man. And what happens? This is a leper. Lepers aren't allowed into town. Jesus heals a man and he becomes so popular as a result that Jesus can't even get back into town now. Jesus has traded places with that leper. Jesus is stuck out in the unpopulated places where the leper once was, while the leper now is permitted into the town because he's been healed. And why? Because the leper told everybody what Jesus did. And so all of this popularity from announcing that Jesus is performing these great works of power, it actually gets in the way of Jesus' opportunity to preach. And so he says, don't tell, because I've come to preach. That's my primary emphasis in my ministry. And so let's see if we can pull all of this together. In this section, Jesus is performing works of power, exercising demons, healing the sick, in order to prove his authority to proclaim God's kingdom. And the crowds respond by latching on to those works of power. They're not really interested in the preaching of repentance. They really want to see the sick healed. They really want to come to him to have their demons cast out. And yet Jesus says, that's not what I came to do. I came to preach, to call sinners to repentance. The crowd wants the works of power side of God's kingdom. Jesus says, God's kingdom I have come to proclaim. That requires repentance. That requires change of heart. That requires faith. Jesus is intent on building a kingdom not on popularity, but on repentance. He wants people to turn from their sin, not simply to turn to him for healing. He wants to renovate our hearts before he renovates our bodies. He wants God's reign to take root in our hearts, not simply in our experience. He has the authority to forgive sins and he forgives the sins of those who hear his message, calling for repentance and faith. That man let down by his four friends receives more than he bargained for that day. He got the works of power side of God's kingdom, healing, raised up to walk, but he also got the forgiveness of sins side of God's kingdom. Repentance, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. But in this section, Jesus calls disciples as well. You see that in chapter 1, verse 16 through 20. And that's mirrored by the call of Levi in chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. To both, he says, follow me. Here then is the heart of the matter. <coughs> Jesus came, chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, chapter 2, verse 17, he came to call. And in chapter 1, verse 20, he calls two men who are with their fathers, and net, father and nets and a boat. He calls them, follow me. He calls to Levi, 
follow me. Everybody gets upset. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners to follow me. His preaching of the kingdom demands the response of repentance and following him. So what does it look like to follow Christ? For some, like the two who are with the nets and the father and the boats, it means leaving that behind to follow him. For some, like Levi, it means repenting of sins to follow him. In both, Jesus calls and men respond. He has the authority to command men to follow him, and they do. They follow him. It's astounding. He walks along the sea, follow me, and they do, four of them. A tax collector, follow me, and he does. He leaves it all behind and follows him. So how do we put all of this together? I think what we're going to see in this first section, chapter 1, verse 14 through 217, we're going to see that Jesus comes into this world with heaven's own authority. He preaches the dawn of God's reign. And that means repentance, because men have gone their own way. We must repent. We must believe the good news. And repentance and faith mean following. It means following this one who possesses God's authority. He calls to us to follow him, to repent, to follow him. And if we do, we may be assured of forgiveness of sins. But there's a superficial kind of follower as well. One who's only in it for the healings. There's the crowds who love the works of power. And Jesus didn't come first of all to work works of power. He came first of all to call sinners to repent. So you may follow him for the works of power, but this does not mean that you are part of his kingdom. You may follow him only for his benefits, but this does not mean that you are part of his kingdom. Those who are part of his kingdom are those who repent and believe and follow. Those who leave all else behind and follow. And so how are we going to approach this section in Mark? Well, you can see by all the colors here and by the structure, by the way that it's arranged here with its mirroring sections that reach a firm climax in 135 through 39. You can see that Mark doesn't want us to read chapter 1 verse 15 without thinking, 14 and 15 without thinking of chapter 2 verse 17. You can see that he doesn't want us to think about the call of the four disciples without also thinking about the call of Levi. You can see that he doesn't want us to think about the authority to teach without thinking about the authority to forgive sins. You can see that he doesn't want us to think about the healing and popularity and the commands to be silent in chapter 1, 29 through 34 without thinking of the same thing in chapter 1, verses 40 through 45. And so what that means is we will take, these, take this section and look at it with each of those mirrored halves together each week. So next week we'll look at 114 through 15 and 217. The following week we'll look at 116 through 20 and 213 through 17, the call of Levi. The following week we'll look at his authority to teach and his authority to forgive sins together. The week after that we'll look at healings, popularity, and commands to silence with healings and popularity and commands to silence. And then finally we will look at that center section, the priority of preaching. I have come to preach. Now, what can we take away with us today from this? I think the primary thing we need to take away is the nature of God's kingdom. God sent Christ into this world as the king of Psalm 2. Not first of all to renovate this world. That will happen. 
But that's not what Jesus came to do, first of all. It's not stamping out hunger, destroying poverty. It's not about overcoming disease or human trafficking or domestic violence. And there are probably as many churches in Brisbane today who are proclaiming God's kingdom as overcoming disease and overcoming poverty and digging wells for the, mis- for the misfortuned. There's probably as many churches who say that's what God's kingdom is as there are churches who say God's kingdom is all about repenting and believing. Jesus came to make all things new, but these things are only superficial symptoms. We are diseased and we are oppressed by demons and we do have sins to forgive because we are sinners. And the solution to that is repentance and faith. It's not merely healings. It begins at the level of the heart. It begins with repentance and faith. Jesus came to renovate the human heart. And there is a kind of disciple who follows Jesus only for his benefits. And there is a kind of disciple who follows Jesus because he is the king. And the dividing line between the two is repentance. Turning away from this world and turning to Christ. Turning from sin and turning to Christ. Jesus tackles this distinction head on in his preaching. He calls us to deny ourselves. Imagine the man raised up to walk, his legs restored. Deny yourself now. Do not use your new body for yourself. Deny yourself and follow me. This is Christ's call. There are many people who claim to be followers of Christ, but they do not regularly deny themselves. They do not regularly repent of sin. They do not regularly turn to Christ again in faith and humility. If a church promises healings, they will show up. If a church proclaims repentance, they will leave. And we must understand that Jesus did not come, first of all, as a healer. He came, first of all, as a proclaimer of a kingdom. He came to bring God's reign to earth. And the reason that was required is because we human beings had insisted on reigning over this earth as we pleased We have crafted and shaped it all for our own benefit and Jesus did not come to continue that trend. He knew that the end of such is certain death. Instead, he came to call sinners to repentance. He came to proclaim good news. That good news is that God was going to be the king and man was no longer in that place. Jesus came to preach this as good news and he came to call us to repent. So have you? Have you repented? That's the line that we step across from beneficiaries, benefiters of God's kingdom, healings only, to denying ourselves, repenting of sin, and following Christ in faith. The line is repentance and faith. God's kingdom is dawned. We expect that one day it will rise in all of its grandeur and power. And that's actually not good news for you if you have not repented. Because you have resisted God's reign over you. You have insisted on going your own way. And so you must repent. You must bow to the sun. You must kiss the sun. You must do homage to the sun. 
You must acknowledge him as the king of this world and no longer yourself. You must turn away from your rebellion. And the good news is that if you do, there is life in Jesus Christ. There is forgiveness of sins. Dismissal. Complete dismissal of sins. He has the authority to forgive sins. He is God's son. Come down to proclaim to us the benevolent, the loving, the gentle reign of God and to forgive sinners who come to him in faith. Lord God, may we bow today before Jesus Christ as our king. Not first of all for his benefits, what we may receive from him, but first of all because of who he is. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the King whom you have set upon Zion, your holy hill, who will rule over these nations with a rod of iron. Lord, may we be wise and discerning. May we bow before the King and kiss Him in reverence and awe. May we turn from our sins, turn from the pleasures of this world, turn from ourselves and our own way. May we turn unto him and deny ourselves and take up his cross and follow him to death and then on into life. We pray that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper now, that you would show us that we have crucified our own selves as the source of our life. We reach our hands outside of ourselves to another to partake in symbol of this bread that gives us nourishment for our physical bodies, just as Christ Jesus gives nourishment and life to our spirits, to our souls, to us. Lord, help us to draw near to him in repentance and faith again today. And may this Lord's Supper that we observe every week call us again every week to follow him in repentance and faith. And we ask this in his name.